Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Friends, let's open up our Bibles together, if that's all right. You can open it to the first book in the New Testament. That is the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, 23. And as you're opening it up, can I just say, as we enter into these holiday kind of rhythms, we're done with the book of Acts, doesn't it feel like everyone is blessed at the moment? Isn't that like the word? The operative word for December holidays in January is blessed. I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. That's the one that everyone's got on speed dial at the moment. And it almost feels like, I mean, never, you can't even throw a rock into the social media world without hitting three people saying, man, at the moment, I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. In fact, if you go just onto Instagram, I'm not even saying Twitter and all the other kind of social media spaces, but just Instagram. This is the most used Twitter or, or you know, handle on, on, on Instagram at the moment. If you type it in, just hashtag blessed, you're going to get 100, as of two days ago, 139 million posts. And if you just scroll through some of them, not all 139 million, but if you just scroll through some of them, you're going to see that the majority of them are homes and holidays and bodies and cars and money and things like that. People are just blessed at the moment, isn't it? We're all blessed. Uh, I think the overuse of this hashtag over the last five years has actually led to some irony and some comedy. So a couple of years ago, uh, Devin Magwood, he's a comedian, he posted this on Twitter. He said, I caught a piece of bacon falling out of my sandwich right before it hit the ground, hashtag blessed. Um, So I don't know what blesses you at the moment. Maybe you're in a place of blessing. But what is that? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to live a life of blessing? Maybe it's material. Am I blessed when I finally land that promotion at the job that I so want. Maybe it's when I drive that brand new car off the sales lot. Maybe it's when I move into that dream home or I marry my you know, high school sweetheart. Or maybe it's when I'm rocking a six-pack abs. Then I am blessed, right? Hashtag blessed. Holidays are around the corner, guys. Don't go to the beach unprepared. <laughs> like all of us, basically. Maybe it's material. Maybe it's spiritual. Am I blessed when I hear the, the, the voice of God audibly? When God opens up opportunities for me of blessing, He opens doors into next seasons. When He just makes me feel all warm and tingly on the inside. Is that what it means to be blessed? What is blessing? And as we finished up with Acts now for a season, I want us to, to go straight to the most famous, probably piece of oratory expression in the history of mankind, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Nothing has ever been said out loud that has been this impactful in the history of the human race. And as Jesus starts his sermon, we want to today look at that first portion. And it's a series that we're going to be calling Blessed Beyond Measure. Just for the next couple of weeks into January, we want to speak about what it means to be truly blessed beyond what you can count, beyond what's measurable. What does it mean to be blessed beyond measure? As Jesus, he's now gaining momentum. He's speaking about this kingdom that is at hand. God is now moving into the final season of restoring all things. And he's teaching about the kingdom, but he's also displaying the kingdom. He's healing, he's restoring. And as these crowds start gathering around him, he goes up onto this mountain, and it sees the crowds gathered around him, and his disciples come and sit down, and then he begins this sermon. And the first portion of this sermon, what do you think is the topic? The topic is, what is the blessed life? 
What does it mean to be hashtag blessed according to Jesus? And this is famously called the Beatitudes. When I just became a Christian, uh, you know, as, as a first year, basically, I, I used to, as an Afrikaans guy, thought it's called the Beatitudes. You know, if you have it like in your Bible there, like some, I don't know, a guy with an attitude is receiving a beating or something like that. It didn't make sense in my mind, but that's what I, but it's actually called the Beatitudes because the Latin word in the beginning there, Beatus, means blessed. So we can simply call this passage that Jesus opens up with, all these blessed are those, blessed are those. We can basically call this passage the blessed ones. Who are the blessed ones? Let's read together Matthew 4 verse 23. This is the intro almost section to before Jesus gets to this portion on blessing. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains. That's probably New Year's that it's speaking about there. Um, the demon possessed the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And when he saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain and he sat down. And then listen to this, and his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. So this is crucial. People often think the Sermon on the Mount is like this glorified thou shalt and thou shalt not list. This is how you bring the favor of God into your life, by living up to this impossibly high standard. But that's not what it's saying. It says here, yes, the crowds... They were with an earshot of what Jesus was saying. They could hear, and they took part in this, but almost like a, a wedding day, you're speaking to the couple as you're speaking to everyone else. His focus was his disciples. Those already in a place of relationship with him, he spoke to them. And almost like all commentators will say, this is like the reflective moment of Moses going up on the mountain, bringing the law of God. This is the new Moses, the ultimate Moses, the final Moses. This is the true human being, the true Israelite Jesus up on the mountain, now not bringing us, as often people would say, you know, the Ten Commandments, it's this list of rules that you're either making or not making. No, God rescued the people of Israel from Egypt, and in the place of covenant relationship, he said, this is how we are going to conduct ourselves. Jesus is saying to us, if you are in my kingdom because of what I have done on the cross, if your stance toward God is one of faith in Christ, if you are part of the kingdom, this is what's going to start taking root in your heart more and more. It's not what you can do for God. Jesus is making the statement, this is what you have in me. If you're a Christian here today, if you're a Christ follower through faith in Jesus, this is not what you can bring to God, what you can maybe find. He's saying, this is what you have in me. And because you have it, nurture it. Because you have it, make that the centerpiece of your life. Let it come and rearrange you today. Let it come and bring peace and rest to you today. Jesus is saying, this is what you have in me. Jesus, friends, can I just maybe bring us a bit of encouragement this morning? In December, at the end of a very long 18 months, Jesus is not preaching at you. This is what you need to do. He is speaking his blessing over you. 
that's what we need. I don't know about you, but that's what I need. As I go into December and January, I don't need preaching at me. This is what you can do. I need to hear this is who I am on behalf of you. This is my blessing over you. So accept it today. Let it come and redirect you. Rest in it today if you are a Christian. This is a season for us not to count our blessings. This is a season to focus on the fact that we are secure in the blessing of Jesus. In fact, this Greek word that we use, blessing, it's the word makarios in Greek. And the root of that word is the word happy. Happy. And you look like that because that word is so weak in English, isn't it? In kind of our westernized African culture, happy is like very, very weak source. No one says happy and you're like, wow, that's impressive because we use it for everything. You know, so this is not, this is not Pharrell Williams happy, right? Clap along if you feel like... It's not that one. That's too weak, friends. This word was never used in Jesus' time of mortal people like you and me. They used it of the gods and of the dead. So if you were Greek, the gods had a kind of happiness, a, a, an eternal joy, a perfect happiness. And if you were Jewish, the dead that are in paradise, they had that kind of perfect joy, a complete happiness. No human being can have that. Only they have that. And Jesus comes and he says, I come to bring you blessing. Makarios, not happiness. I bring you perfect joy, eternal happiness, the kind that is not affected by your life. It's not affected by your bank balance or lack thereof. Amen. Um, it's not affected by your physical health or the country or politics. It's the kind of joy that transcends all of those things. You can have everything you want and be deeply unhappy. You can have absolutely nothing according to this world and be the most deeply joyous person in the world and the other way around as well. Jesus says, I don't bring you happiness. I come to say deeply blessed are those who are in me because the world will not take this from you. In fact, that's why we actually see a clue. The very first beatitude, blessed are, and the very last one, it's like a hamburger of blessedness. Because the very first and very last one, intentionally, that's how the Jewish people would write, it says only in those two moments, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Not they will, might have it, they, you know, maybe they can get it, maybe they'll get it. No, it says to these, it is so, amen. Blessed, makarios, are you in Jesus. So what we're also going to do differently during the next couple of weeks the structure is going to be a bit different. At certain moments, maybe once or twice in the sermon, we are going to take a moment of discussion around our groups. So before we get into the first beatitude today, we're going to give you five minutes. It's going to be in a countdown as well. But here's the question I, got, I want you guys just to quickly, just around your table, just discuss. This is the question. What then is the difference between living for many blessings, good things, many blessings. I'm living for those things. What's the difference between that and living from the place of being blessed? If you want to take a photo of that really quickly, if you're going to be that person right after I stop speaking, you're going to be like, what's the question again? So if you want to take a photo of that, you're more than welcome to. But the question is, what's the difference between living for many blessings and living from the place of being blessed? 
blessed. Five minutes, and then we're going to get into our first beatitude. Go for it. Great stuff. I'm sure that you had very productive discussions. If you have the answer to this whole issue, just come and tell me afterwards, please, what it is. Um, I'm sure we have figured it out, as the church always does. So blessed, blessed Makarios, deep, perfect joy is to those who are in Christ. What is the first of these? Jesus unpacks it. Read with me in your Bible then. Jesus transitions, the crowds, the disciples sit down, and it says this in verse 2 of chapter 5. Then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't even begin with a joke. Isn't it weird? Like, no joke, no video, no illustration. He just goes straight to, blessed are the poor. What a strange way to start. And it seems as if Jesus is saying this inhumane, almost unreachable level of joy, of perfect happiness, it's connected to some sort of poverty. (laughs) How strange is that? But, you know, there's many debates about this, which we don't have time for this morning. So I'll just tell you where I side with. And that's two things. I don't think, number one, Jesus is saying that to be materially poor is to be blessed. That poverty and materialism is, you know, equals blessedness. And, you know, if that were the case, just think about this. It would mean that the whole mission of the church, if you're a Christian here this morning, and for us, our mission would have to be to go into the city of Pretoria and make everyone, including yourself, as poor as we possibly can. Wouldn't that be great? Like our mission, friends, mission statement against the wall, make South Africa poorer again or something like that. That's our mission statement because then people are blessed, right? It doesn't make sense. If you read the whole focus of the Scriptures, I mean, just think about this. The, the only prayer that we have in the book of Proverbs, this wisdom literature, is a prayer by a guy named Agur, and he only prays one thing. God, don't give me either riches or poverty. He says, that's not the point. Even Paul, Philippians 4, he says, I have known deep riches and deep poverty. Once again, that's not the point. So I don't think he's saying you are blessed if you are poor. I also don't think that what many people think he's saying here is that, you know, to be, to be poor in spirit means that you have low self-esteem. Isn't that what some of you guys see? Almost like you have to slump in your chair like, I'm so poor in spirit right now. Um, that's how we feel at the end of the year very often. I'm poor in spirit. But it's not having low self-esteem or a lack of personality. <laughs> that's not what poor in spirit means. It's like someone who says, I have no ambition in life, I have no drive, I have no passion, I live a passionless life, or I, because I'm a Christian, I think I have to almost undermine my personality, or I have to be ashamed of any success or money or status that God brings into my life. That's being poor in spirit. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. Jesus is saying not, I want Poverty and materialism or poverty and emotion, he's saying, I want poverty of spirit. Being poor in spirit means that there is a moment in my life where I deeply recognize without fail that I can bring nothing spiritually or in religion of self-help before God. I don't need a bit of help. I am in need of God. Spiritually, I realize my my spiritual account is not overdrawn. I swear a bit too much. 
I, I jumped into the wrong bed, or, you know, I've made some oopsies, you know, I just need a bit of help. No, I am spiritually bankrupt. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. I mean, think about the metaphor Jesus uses. The poor have no resources to fall back on. They have to go outside of themselves to find true help. And Jesus says those who come to present themselves before God with a list of accomplishments in religion and morals and the kind of upstanding person in the community that you are, I have no help for you. Jesus says, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. doesn't mean they are actual sick and healthy people. It means some people don't think they need God. I may be in need of a bit of religion, just sprinkle a bit of Jesus over my life. But this is why James so famously says, therefore, God resists the proud. I'm proud in who I am and what I've done and what I bring to God. I'm proud when compared to other people. He says, I resist that person. But what does it say? He gives grace. Is there a sweeter sounding word in the universe than when the God of the universe says grace? My unmerited favor to those who are humble. God, I don't need some religion. I am desperately in need of you. It's why the Modern Post, the band, they do a cover version of the old hymn, Rock of Ages, when it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have nothing to bring. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I'm a good moral person. You know, I don't swear too much. I, I try and do good things. I don't hang out with the wrong people at the wrong times and dress in the wrong way. I go to church. I serve. I give. I'm charitable with what I do. He says, you are bringing things that have no consequence to God. There is a spiritual bankruptcy that is accepted by God and nothing else. It's amazing. The Beatitudes begin with an emptying of self. And then it moves to a filling with God. And you see it, Jesus, all throughout his ministry, who did he have the most venomous statements reserved for? Was it the poor and the needy and the tax collectors? Guys, go and watch The Chosen. How good is The Chosen? My wife keeps trying to get me to watch more episodes, and I'm always the sucky one who doesn't say yes. But there's a moment where Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the kind of, you know, seedy people of his day. I love how they put that scene together. Because Jesus is not the typical westernized, you know, hair product model with his blue eyes and his white skin or whatever. He's a guy who works with wood for a living. And he's just a lacquer oak. Because people just want to be with him. And they just have an awesome time. Like I watch it and I'm like, I want to be there right now. I just want to crack jokes with Jesus. I just want to sit there and have a good laugh. And who comes knocking on the door? It's the Pharisees saying, this is a scandal. How can you be with these people? And why then does Jesus tell this little mini parable? Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to who? To some who trusted in themselves. There's nothing wrong with morality. If you're a Christian, there's nothing wrong with saying, God, I want to grow, I want to mature, I want to move away from old thinking. But where is my trust? I trust in myself. He said of them, they are righteous and they look down on everyone else. He tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the religious elite of the day, and the other a tax collector, the most hated people amongst the Jews. 
The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. Guys, if you pray like this in church, like I'm just saying, like someone, <laughs> someone's going to hear you. Um, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. Wow. This is an impressive man, religious. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see that God does not want us to be these like self-hating, insecure worms? Like, oh, I'm a Christian and I'm such a little, you know, wet spaghetti noodle going around. He says, I want to exalt you in my kingdom. You are a son and a daughter of the king. You are loved and accepted and adopted and called. I will exalt you, but that comes through the gate of humility. The one who comes with his pedigree, I reject you. That's harsh, but that's beautiful. Because it means for the materially impoverished person, you can be as impoverished as possible and be deeply and finally accepted and joyous before God. And you can have literally everything you want. What's that famous Jim Carrey quote? I hope that everyone becomes rich and famous and gets everything they ever wanted so they too can see that's not the answer. And at the same time, you can be raised up by God as a billionaire with resources to use and invest and be so humble before the God who raises you up. And you can be poor and so disgruntled with the God who isn't giving you what you are supposed to have. It's not the point, Jesus says. It's those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy, they walk away elevated by the God who is over all things. Friends, can I just say this? Jesus is basically saying to us today, you will never depend on something if you think you don't need it. I will never depend on something if I don't truly think I need it. Yes, I will lean into it every now and then. When things are really rough, I'll kind of, you know, step in and out. I'll dance around it, but I will never deeply depend. My life is fully weighted into this Jesus guy because I have nothing apart from him. If I am just a little overdrawn spiritually, I just need a credit card just for the next couple of months, Jesus, spiritually. Just help me a little bit here. Just give me a leg up then I'll be back in the thing. I'll make it work. Or do I realize I have nothing apart from him? I will never depend on something that I don't truly need. Substitutions for that maybe this morning. Instead of that, I say my religious performance is the basis of my standing before God. I ask people often, how's it going on your faith? Oh, and I didn't read this week, you know, Miss Community Group, but, you know, next week, I'm that new version plan, I'm going to pick it up again, and I'm going to get every day, and I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to... My religious performance is the basis of my standing. I don't need God, I just need a bit of a pickup. Or maybe it's not my religious performance, but it's my past mistakes and my brokenness. That's the basis of my standing. God, if these people just knew what happened to me in my life, the things that I did as a Christian, the things that I've done, 
the places I get stuck in, that becomes the basis of my relationship with God. Or maybe it's my life circumstances. When life is good, man, God is good. And I'm posting it on Instagram and Facebook and my WhatsApp is just like a series of just verses and it's beautiful. But when life punches me right in the face, oh God, where are you? My circumstances become the basis of my standing before God. I have to keep these details vague, but there's someone who's close to me that this person was a business person par excellence. Midas touch, whatever this person touched in business, it was just a massive success for decades. And this person standing in the community was this business and what they had done. And then one day that whole thing fell flat. They went bankrupt. And I stood at a distance and I saw this person who had no interest in religion and Jesus. And because of this failing in this person's personal life, it was public, it was in the newspapers, it was a horrible moment for them. I saw them starting to turn to Jesus, going to church, asking questions, starting to pray. And I had such hope, but the moment this person got their footing back into the business world and they could start proving them again financially and they got their status almost back one inch at a time, you saw them closing the door on Jesus once again. I'm not in need. I just need a leg up. Do you realize today, has there come a time in your life where you say, without Jesus, I am dead, broken, deaf, and blind? Or are you like Ahmed, the dead terrorist? You've seen that guy? He's literally a skeleton. You know, the puppet? He's like, it's a flesh wound, guys. It's fine. It's just a flesh wound. You're like, you're literally dead, my friend. Have I come to the place where I say without Christ, no matter what you have and own and do, no matter your lack of status or, or the, the status that you have, do I realize that without the beauty and the necessity of Jesus in my life, I have nothing. All the chess pieces will go back into the set, the end. I have nothing apart from Christ. Just last two thoughts is, you know what the result though is of spiritual bankruptcy? It's the very opposite of what we think. You know what the result is of spiritual bankruptcy? Incredible strength. Incredible strength. Why? Because how brittle is a person's life when your identity and your worth and your purpose is built upon what you have, what you can do, and what others say about you? How brittle is that kind of life? You're one day away from losing everything that you hold most dear, that defines you, that makes you. Conversely, how strong is a person's life when what they are, who they are, their identity, worth, and purpose is found not in themselves, what they can do, what they can earn, what they can say, what others say about them, but it's found outside of themselves and God. That's Viktor Frankl's whole thing, the famous Jewish doctor in Auschwitz. And he says, these people, this is the worst possible circumstance for a human being to be in. He said, some people just fall apart emotionally. They just break apart. They die from hopelessness. Some people become cruel. They step on others to survive. But he said, some people, as a psychiatrist, he looked at them and he said, why were some people able to stay strong and kind in the worst imaginable circumstances because their hope, he says, in the man's search for meaning was found in something that transcended themselves. 
How strong is the person raised up by God, held by God? That's why Paul says confidently, for when I am weak, 2 Corinthians 12, then I'm strong. Was Paul a weak man? (laughs) No, friends. He was a driven, brilliant academic and teacher. But he says, when I realize where my strength is, then I'm strong. And the last thing is, you know what it also leads to? Is deep humility and compassion for other people. Deep humility and compassion. Why? Because if I'm not in God's family because of what I have done, my socioeconomic standing, my culture, my ethnic group, I grew up in a Christian home, I went, I've got all the things on the right cards, I married the right person. If none of that qualified me, then no one can be disqualified. Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, he has a church, he handed it over recently, but he had a church in Manhattan in New York, working just mostly with a bunch of white-collar yuppies in one of the biggest cities in the world. He's a guy who has got his, his doctorate. He's been a professor. He is the, the picture of privilege. And yet he tells a story of being in South Africa in the early 2000s, and he's in Soweto, and he's spending a couple of hours with an old lady in her shanty. And he says they are crying as they spend time together because he says, for me, I have more in common with this elderly black lady in South Africa than I have with my neighbor in Manhattan who's not a Christian. I have more this for me as family. Because I didn't earn it, no one can be disqualified. You are my brother and you are my sister. So where do we get it in closing? Where do we get this kind of spiritual bankruptcy? I tell you a story. Saturday morning, 29th of July, 2006, a plane carrying a bunch of skydivers took up from a small airport in Missouri in the USA. And on board, one of the people on board was a girl called Kimberly Dia. She's a 21-year-old Australian who is in the US, living out her passion, teaching underprivileged kids, kids with disabilities. And she was at the end of her trip now fulfilling this lifelong dream with a friend of going skydiving. And they take off and every person has been partnered up with someone who's experienced. And she has been partnered up with a guy called Robert Cook. He is a lifelong professional, more than 2,000 jumps, and you jump out in tandem with this person. And right after the airplane takes off, a couple of minutes later, people on the ground would later say that they heard this massive bang coming from the airplane and then just smoke pouring out of it. And what was excitement just a couple of seconds ago turns into gut-wrenching horror on the plane. Now, Robert Cook, after many years, within seconds, knew exactly what was going to happen. And he turned to Kimberly D and I said, we are going to crash. I want you to hold on to me. I'm going to cradle you, and I'm going to lie on my back as I hold you. And this man, knowing what was going to happen, was going to absorb this crash into his own body. Seconds later, she is for dear life clinging onto this man that she's just met. 21-year-old Kimberly Deer, and seconds later, this plane violently crashes in an urban area. Robert Cook is instantly killed. But Kimberly Deer, though bruised and battered, lives. 
Because this man had in his own body absorbed the horror of that crash. And because of that, she could live. Later, the Australian government would award Cook the Star of Courage. It's one of Australia's highest awards of honor for bravery. And at his funeral, a pastor made the comment to say, this reminds me of a greater death on behalf of a greater evil. And he quotes 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is where we find a deep need for God. So I'm going to ask you in this next week, maybe this is a bit new to some of you, how do we put this into practice? (laughs) This is not an ABC kind of sermon. This is a God come and deeply rearrange me on the inside. So I want to give you a practice that's going to do exactly that. There are hundreds of beautiful spiritual practices over the last 2,000 years, and one of them that the early church fathers and mothers often practiced is breathing in and out as you pray. And you would take one verse, break it into two parts, one statement and another. And as you breathe in, at the office, overwhelmed, in the traffic, overwhelmed most probably, just at home, overwhelmed. And you just sit back in your chair. As you breathe in, in your mind, in your heart, you just pray the first part of the prayer. As you breathe out, you just pray the second part of that prayer. And here's what I want to maybe encourage you to pray over the next week. As we breathe in, I say, Jesus, you became poor for me. And as I breathe out, I am deeply rich in you. Breathe in. You became poor for me. Breathe out. I am deeply rich in you. Let's just do that once or twice. Just close your eyes for a second. Just breathe in, in your mind. You became poor for me. Breathe out. I am deeply rich in you. Breathe in. You became poor for me. Breathe out. I am deeply rich in you. Jesus, this morning, as we accept, as we rest in a blessedness that goes beyond measure, I pray, God, that that we would be so aware of just who you are on our behalf. God, raise us up, each of us, as spiritual giants that know exactly, God, who we are without you. May we just be humbled in joy again. God, I know that you have absorbed in yourself every bit of my sin brokenness. God, the the very death and, and, and the enemy schemes, all of that, God, has been absorbed in you. And therefore, I can live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.